think about the word unstable. Unstable. Whether you're driving over a bridge, whether you're flying in an airplane, or whether you're hiking the side of a mountain, unstable is not the word you want to describe the surface that you're standing upon. Am I right? Earlier this year, many of you guys probably remember up in the Big Sur area that there were crazy weather storms um, from all of the rain that we got in January and February, which caused the part of Highway 1 to shut down because of unstable ground, right? There was a huge, massive landslide that took place that actually covered a third of a mile of the highway. Um, and in March, it was actually estimated that it would take a whole year and millions of dollars to repair all the damage that was caused by those rains. Along with that landslide, there was a bridge, a bridge that was unable to be fixed and needs to be completely taken out and redone in that area. Now, when this bridge was unable to be repaired and no longer stable for people to use, more than 400 residents were actually stuck between the landslide area and the bridge being unable to be used and could only leave or come by foot through that big gap where the bridge was. So basically that cut off tourists from visiting the spas and the hotels along that area. It also cut off law enforcement. Can you imagine living in an area where law enforcement couldn't, be, uh, couldn't come over and help you out if you had an issue? It also cut off public services. Helicopters had to come in and bring and deliver food to people because they were stuck there earlier this year. So unstable is the best way to describe both that bridge that was there as well as that whole area. Unstable to the point that you and I, we wouldn't be driving our families across that bridge, right? We wouldn't be trying to go over there and mess with Highway 1 right now, right? But whether it's a bridge, a landslide, maybe a massive earthquake here in California, or a fire, unstable ground beneath our feet isn't, some, isn't the only thing that we should be cautious and avoiding. Because in fact, almost anything that would be described as unstable should really be unsettling to us. Think about it. Unstable finances, unstable relationships, unstable marriage, unstable health, an unstable vehicle, an unstable car, an unstable economy, even an unstable ride at Disneyland, right? we would be unsettled about any of those things that would be described as unstable. But unstable itself, it's, it's just not a desirous word. But do you know what's worse than all of these circumstances being characterized as unstable? What's worse than that would be you or me being characterized as unstable. For you to be operating through life in an un unstable way, in your thoughts, in your emotions, in your actions, in your decisions, that would be far worse than any unstable circumstance. It would be you or I operating in an unstable way. Because let's be clear about something here from the get-go. Unstability, it's gonna happen, right? Circumstances are unstable. They're constantly changing. They're out of our control. And the sky really is the limit of what could come our way day to day. So instability, it's a guarantee. But there's a way for you and I to be characterized as stable, even in the most unstable of times. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. And we're going to start in Psalm 119, verse 25. 
So Psalm 119, verse 25. Tonight we're here to find out what is that source of stability that you and I can depend fully upon so that the state of our souls is characterized as stable rather than unstable no matter what comes our way. So Psalm 119, verse 25. What's that source of stability for us? Go ahead and read with me. It says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So there's these two times that he is saying, there's a problem with my soul, but the solution is something according to your word. When life is getting unstable, he is rushing to God's word. So for point number one, you need to rush to God's word in times of trouble. Rush to God's word in times of trouble. The psalmist begins this section with a heavy sense of sorrow and sadness. He writes, my soul clings to the dust, meaning his soul, himself, his life. It's holding tightly to the dust, the ground that he is walking upon. We see a man in such despair and sorrow that he is sensing his own mortality, his own powerlessness to rise above his grief. We don't know exactly what's causing this deep sense of trouble, though, but we can all identify with him on some level, right? With being in a place of great trouble, maybe it's a circumstance that you've faced, a tragedy or a loss or death. Maybe it's a financial burden. Maybe it's bills stacked up beyond what you can pay or loss of employment. Maybe it's a health issue that you're facing. Maybe it's a problem with a child or a marriage that has faced great trouble. There can be circumstances that are deeply troubling, but there can also be spiritual times, right? Maybe it's your soul that's just restless. Maybe it's cast down. Maybe it's burdened. And it's your soul that needs renewal. When we match our fallen, finite selves to a fallen and corrupt world, these kinds of times of trouble, they're guaranteed to come. They're a sure thing. We cannot avoid them. We cannot get around them. They will take place. But what does the psalmist do when he feels this way? He says, give me life according to your word. He looks to the Bible. But notice the phrase, give me life. There's an interesting connection here to creation. In the beginning, God made us from dust, which is where the psalmist's soul is clinging back to. He's grabbing on to that dust that he was created from and to the dust that he will return to. And in creation, God gave life by speaking it into existence. He spoke and life was created. Just as the psalmist looks to God's words for life in our text, clearly connecting that we originated from God's words and we also will be receiving increased life from God's words. So the psalmist is clinging to the dust. He was having a rough time, but he is looking for life from the very place that he first got it from the word of God. So when life gets rough, he's crying out for God's word. Well, tonight we are considering our lives, right? What do we rush to in times of trouble? 
where do you go? Oftentimes, people rush anywhere but God's word. They want a quick fix to help them feel better, to feel stable when they see their powerlessness in a situation. People rush to their spouse. People rush to their friends, to food, to shopping, you name it, the gym, all sorts of things. We rush to things, but look at what the psalmist rushes to. It's God's word alone. Give me life according to your word. He's laid so low in his sorrow that he is looking for something greater than a positive feeling. He is looking for life itself. The psalmist knows that more life is the cure to his troubles. The psalmist doesn't pray for comfort or relief like sometimes we do, right? Because he knew that comfort and relief will be delivered to him out of increased life. It's an increase of life that he needed at his core. I love what Spurgeon says in explanation to this verse. He says, when a person is deeply depressed in spirit, weak and bent towards the ground, the main thing is to increase his stamina and put more life into him. When his spirit revives and his body becomes upright, in reviving the life, the whole man is renewed. So let's talk about what that practically looks like for us. Well, first, we need to be having a regular pattern of taking in God's word. You get this sense from the psalmist that it's not like something bad happens and all of a sudden he's thinking, I need to go to God's word. He's already there. He's not going anywhere new, but his troubles are just pushing him deeper into God's word. So in your life, are you consistently taking in God's word? And yes, ladies, I realize that is so basic, right? Some of you might be thinking, this is basic. Why are you talking about going to God's word on a consistent pattern day after day? Well, let me tell you something. As you do ministry and as you do ministry in this church, a common confession from people is that they are not in their Bibles often or regularly or consistently. People that you expect are in the Bible are often not in the Bible. An example, a few months back, my co-leader and I in our college ministry, we began to sense this one night that these girls aren't in their Bibles like they know that they need to be. And so when you have conversations like this, you want to get to the facts. Like, what do you really mean you're not being consistent in your Bible? Does that mean you read it five times this week, not seven, or one time this week? Like, where are we really at? So we started asking questions, trying to figure out how much are you really taking in? How much at a time? Was it, you know, every day that you're having your quiet time or just here and there? Give us the real picture. And so what we decided to do was my co-leader and I, we said, all right, for the next six days, from, from now till that next small group in a week, we want you to keep track of exactly what you do day after day. So they took a piece of paper and we told them, write down which chapters in the Bible you read, how much time you spend in prayer, like tell us what exactly your quiet time looks like because we want a real sense of what does it look like for you to be pursuing God and seeking after him. And so they all left that day very excited, on board, enthusiastic about that day that was coming one week later. And that extra step of motivation was you're turning that paper in to us, your leaders, when you come back in a week. So make sure you go do as much as you want Fill up that paper with what your quiet time will be looking like. So the next week rolled around, right? And let me tell you, overall, it was much more startling than we had expected. Much more startling than we thought. 
And my guess is that if this room took inventory and kept a report card of your pursuit of the Lord and his word this next week, what would that look like? Would it be similar? Would it be better? I don't know. But why is that? Why are so many women who know that they want to be in God's word not doing it? Well, if I asked each of you to write down your number one reason tonight of why are you not more consistent in your Bible or seasons that maybe you haven't been, maybe right now you're doing great, but seasons that you haven't been very consistent, what would you say? Think about it for a moment. If you were turning that in anonymously, what would you say? What's your number one reason for why you're not often more consistent in the Bible than you otherwise would be? Well, I think one of the things is that the biggest issue to this is that we give surface-level answers, right? We think, it's because I don't have time, or I got busy, or I have another child in my home, or work is crazy, right? We think of specific, tangible things, but that's not the real issue in any of our lives. Because the real problem for the majority of people not being consistent in their Bibles is that they don't sense their need for it. We don't grasp a real sense of our great, great need to be in God's word regularly. It's like when I was in Israel over the past couple weeks. I was there for 10 days with my husband. And we were there with a big group from Compass, almost 80 people. And every day of our trip, we had stop after stop, place after place to go to and visit. And while we were there, it was very hot. It was very hot. We had areas that we visited similar to California. We had coastal places, we had inland, and then we had the desert. So similar to traveling from our coast to maybe Palm Springs, kind of that type of terrain. So it's summertime over there, which already means hot weather. But on top of that, we were experiencing a heat wave. So even Ben, who's been there five times now, said, this is unusually hot. Like, this is hotter than any prior time I've been here. And not only was there a heat wave, and it was already summer, but we were visiting the desert on those days. Um, So you can imagine how hot it felt. There were certain days where our guides told us, in the shade, it'll be about 115, 120, which was very hot, right? You can imagine. You can see that picture. Well, it's not like we could just recognize it's a hot day, so let's stay inside, let's stay in the AC, let's not do much today, right? We had sights to see, we had places to go, we had information to be taught. So we walked around in this heat, we climbed uphill in this heat, we sat there and just dripped sweat, like down our backs in this heat, because there was really no other option. But the longer this trip went on, the hotter those days became, and the more time we spent outside, I'll tell you one thing, I've never seen people sense their great need for water more greatly. Our fantastic bus drivers had an ice chest at the front of the bus where they kept cold water for us. They would put a bunch of ice over it. We had unlimited access because we just paid up front for as many bottles as we wanted through the week. But I've never seen a group of people so desperately sensing their need for water. And as you can imagine, Every time we exited that bus to go out in that heat, we grabbed cold water. Even if we already had half a bottle of water, we grabbed colder water. Every time we got back on the bus after being out in the heat for a couple hours, we grabbed cold water some more. Like we did not go anywhere without a bottle of cold water in hand because we knew our great need for that refreshment, for the water and what it'll do for our bodies. But already I've been back one full week. And do you know what I no longer sense a great need for? drinking water. 
Like my body still needs water desperately, but since being back, I don't sense the need for it and my consumption has dwindled greatly. I have not drank as much water as I was there in Israel. Sensing your great need though for God's word, it's the foundation to consistency in God's word. And consistency in God's word is essential for you to have stability in your life through times of trouble. Do you sense your need like this though for God's word? Like a person walking through the desert needing cold water? Is that what your spiritual life looks like with God's word? Without water in Israel, we would not have survived those 10 days. I guarantee it. And if we were half-hearted in our efforts to consume water while we were there, there would have been serious ramifications to follow. People would have fainted. People would have been dehydrated. It would not have been good for those 80 people if we were half-hearted about our consumption of water. And it's the exact same thing for your life and your great need for God's word. But let me be clear. Sensing your great need for the Bible, it gets you to the Bible, but it's not enough to keep you in your Bible. Because there's two things that will keep you coming back day after day. One is desire and one is discipline. Desire is going to be that sense of I want it, I long for it, I crave after it. While discipline, discipline is training yourself to then go toward it, to have that action attached, to choose to do it and to follow through. But you have to recognize that desire without discipline isn't enough. And discipline without desire isn't enough. If either one is isolated, you won't last. You won't keep at it day after day. So you have to cultivate a soul that desires and longs after God's word on one hand, while exercising discipline and self-control on the other hand to get you coming back. We'll look back at our text in verses 26 and 27. The psalmist goes on to say, When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. So we saw how the psalmist, his circumstances, they were forcing him even closer to the Lord. But now we see that his his circumstances and his troubles have made him more teachable. He opened his life, including his troubles, by telling of his ways to the Lord. And in so doing, his concern now goes from his immediate problems to instead wanting to better understand and apply God's word. He prays in that verse for instruction when he states, teach me your statutes. And he also prays for illumination when he says, make me understand the way of your precepts. Notice he doesn't just run to how awesome God is and how great his promises are and thinking on those types of things. Instead, he gets to, God, tell me what you want me to do. So we want to develop that even more later, but it's important to note how he starts saying, God, tell me what you want me to do about what you say. His last phrase from what I just read said, I will meditate on your wondrous works. So the psalmist doesn't have the entirety of the Bible that we have, right? From his perspective, from his standpoint versus ours. Yet he's meditating on God's wonderful works as seen in the Old Testament. So that, those are the types of things that he's recalling to mind, which is an important thing for us to remember that we can't ignore the treasure chest found in our Old Testament. We need to keep reading it, studying it, bringing it to mind, all of those wonderful things that our God has done. 
Next we read in our text, my soul melts away for sorrow, strengthen me according to your word. Again, we see that these are no small issues that the psalmist is facing. He is dissolving away in tears. We again catch that glimpse that the psalmist's troubles, they're driving him back to the word of God though. What do your troubles drive you to? Where do you go to stay afloat and to gain strength to keep going? The psalmist here cries out for strength to be derived from God's word. So not only do we see life being given from God's word, we also see strength being given from God's word. To strengthen here means to rise up, to get up, which is the opposite of what we often want to do, right? When we face trouble, we want to just stay low, stay there, maybe not get up, not approach the day. But here, his troubles are causing him to rise up because he's going to God's word. So how often are we looking for change in our circumstance when really God wants us to be looking for strength in him in our present circumstance, right? We look for change rather than just looking for strength from God. So stability as you interact with your circumstances, it's gonna come directly from a relationship with God's word because circumstances are unstable and constantly changing, yet God's word, it is stable and it's unchanging. So as we move to the second half of our passage, the last four verses, let's go ahead and read them together, starting in verse 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So a very noticeable shift takes place right here. You can really pick it up in those last three verses when he says words like, I have, I, I set, I cling, and I will run. He doesn't just want comfort from God's word to be filling up his mind and his heart. He wants instead to dominate his actions, God's word to dominate his actions. He wants to do exactly what God's word says. So that's gonna bring us to point number two, which says, Match your actions to God's instructions. Match your actions to God's instructions. He doesn't just want to know what God's word says. He wants to do what God's word says. Again, he doesn't just search for comfort, for peace, for some great insight to think about in his mind. Instead, he declares an eagerness to obey all that God reveals to him in his word. So let's look further at what these verses are going to, how they're going to play out his desire for wanting to do God's word. He says, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. So look at what he says, put false ways far from me. This is so interesting. And it would be so easy for him to say, put sorrow far from me or put this trial far from me or put my troubles far from me. But that's not what the psalmist says. Instead, he longs for true ways. He wants anything that doesn't match up with truth to be as far away from him as possible. Anything associated with sins and lies, he wants to avoid. But unfortunately, that's not always the way we respond. We want to get rid of the sorrow. We want to get rid of the pain. We want to get rid of the suffering. Meanwhile, God wants to get rid of our sin which really expresses a lot about our core desires, doesn't it? What are you more afraid of, sin 
or suffering. The sad reality is that far more often, we are afraid of our suffering rather than sinning against God. Suffering, we look at that and we think, oh no, anything but that. While sin, well, it's not the greatest thing, but God will forgive me, right? That's so often how we treat it, but that's not how God wants us to think. We should have a radically different view of suffering than the world does. We should even be able to say crazy things like found in Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. God wants us, like the psalmist, to cry out for him to graciously teach us his law. And notice that term law that he uses here. We often think of law as a harsh negative word, but the psalmist, he's the opposite. He says that he loves the law. He knew that in God's law was help and safety. So obviously, the law would be a negative thing for an unbeliever because it condemns them. But for us who have put their faith in Christ, God has now written his law on our hearts. We should love it. We should, be, we should long to be led by it. And even looking back at verse 26 and 27, when he said, teach me your statutes, make me understand the way of your precepts, this is still when he was talking about running to God's word. Notice that he's not just running to God's promises, but his precepts, which is again an interesting word that he uses. According to one commentary, the specific word points to particular instructions of the Lord as of one who cares about detail. So the psalmist, he wants to know the specific instructions from God's word that he can find there. He wants to do exactly what God's word says. Verse 30, as we continue on, it says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. So he starts off talking about faithfulness. When you hear that word, hopefully it makes you think of God, the faithfulness of our God. Our faithful God is the ultimate example of stability, right? He never changes. He doesn't have mood swings. He is always constant. Isn't that what we want, though, for our lives? Faithfulness is one of those attributes that God actually shares with us. He wants us to be constant like him. Now, we obviously will not be perfect in our faithfulness like God is, but he has set a pattern for us to follow. So how do we go about that? Well, we go about that by setting his rules before us. And we've talked about having that regular systematic intake of God's word on a daily basis. But we need to also be reading our Bibles and literally putting his commands, his word in front of our eyes. So let's take that a level deeper. Let's talk about how we might practically do that. Well, remember that the psalmist, he's not merely looking for knowledge, to just know things. Instead, he's He's, not also, he's also not just looking at his promises, but instead he wants to know what to do. And we should be that same way in our own desires. So think about it. When you spend time in God's word, are you just looking for information? Hopefully you should now be looking for application every single time. You shouldn't be done with your quiet time until you have a sense of, this is exactly what I'm going to go and try to do all day long because of what I read in God's word. And that's why even the TAN method, as explained in Partners, it ends with the now portion after studying your Bible. We want to know what to go and do about what we just learned. So this should be a goal that you have every single day. And maybe it's something that you need to really set before your eyes and write down and put before you. Because if I asked you 
What did you learn today from your time in God's word or yesterday from your time in God's word? Hopefully you would have some information to share with me or with the people at your table. But if I asked you, how did you seek to apply God's word all day long from what you studied this morning or from what you studied yesterday, what would you have to share with us? What did you go out and try to apply all day from your time in God's word? Did you seek to match your actions with God's instructions? So I'd encourage you that as you wrap up spending time in God's word, write out a brief application. Explain what the difference is going to be in your life that day. Write down exactly what God wants you to do and then go do it. Set his rules before you, even on a practical level. Keep that note card with you and keep looking back to it. Well, next in verse 31, he says, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Again, what he is really afraid of is sin and shame, not his suffering. This should drive us to really consider how often is our fear misplaced onto our comforts in the storm rather than on offending our heavenly father who is with us in that storm. It reminds me of a misplaced fear that we see in our kids all the time, and one that our household saw all the time growing up, and that is the dentist. Probably many of you can agree with me. Being strapped into that chair as a kid, forced to keep your mouth open, they're sticking stuff in your mouth, vibrating, loud. You have the technician who's covered head to toe in gear and goggles, and he's trying to talk to you behind that face mask, so you're hearing muffled sounds behind there. I mean, what a terrifying scene as a child. I was definitely terrified as a child. But do you know what should have been my fear when going to that well check appointment for x-rays and teeth cleaning? My real fear, it should have been not going at all because of the damage that would then be caused in my mouth if I didn't go at all. As a kid, I was fearful of the wrong thing. That precautionary appointment, those were meant to protect me from that further disaster that would have happened with undealt with dental damage. And similarly, in our trials, we often misplace our fear when we are scared of suffering rather than scared of sinning. There's real damage that is caused by our sinning, and it's sinning against God that our hearts really should be fearful of, just like the psalmist. So make sure that your fears aren't misplaced in your suffering. And lastly, he proclaims, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So notice how he begins there. I will run. He expresses a commitment not just to understand God's word, but to do it. And that, that commitment that he expresses has excitement attached to it. I will run. I will go as fast and as hard as I can to obey God. Just show me the way to go and I will go. That's the attitude he has. This is the way that we need to approach God's word, with an eagerness to go and do all that it says. This eagerness also reminds us of something important that you don't want to miss. God's commandments aren't burdensome. They're something good. Did you catch that? God's commandments aren't burdensome. They are something good. When we realize that, there's a total change in our perspective as we approach God's word. When we realize that he is leading us somewhere good with his commandments, we will say, God, show me where you want me to go, and then I will run there as fast and as hard as I can. Now, this eagerness, it doesn't come without dependence, right? The psalmist doesn't think, I can just go and do this by myself. 
he realizes that he needs God's help. Without God's help, he won't be able to keep God's commandments. And the specific help that he is looking for from God in this text is for God to enlarge his heart. He realizes that he realizes that his problem isn't his technique, it's his desires. Do you realize that though? Every time you sin, it's because you want to. It's because you want to. It's not just a matter of, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or I didn't realize I shouldn't do that, or I didn't get enough sleep last night. It's a matter of the heart. I sinned because I didn't want to do the right thing. I chose to do that wrong thing. But this is where God helps us. As we grow in Christ, he changes our desires. He enlarges our hearts. He helps us long for what is right, what is good, what is holy, and to long to long and run after his commandments. That's what God helps us to do as we grow. So as we wrap up here tonight and head into our small groups in a moment, what an encouraging conclusion to think of from this section of scripture. In such an unstable world, our lives can be characterized by stability that only comes through what God can provide us through his word, which is ever-present for us, always available to us, at this portion in our standing, at this portion of our our world. And as we run in the way of obeying God's word, he will keep enlarging our hearts. He will keep enlarging and shaping our desires to want to long and obey him more and more. So that's the encouragement we get to leave with as we think of our standing in Christ as new creations and as we seek after his word more and more. Let's pray. God, we do just thank you so, so much that we have the incredible resource of your word. God, I thank you for just the perspective we get from this whole psalm, 176 verses, all interacting with your word, claiming his love, his desire, his eagerness to obey you and follow you and want to know your word more and more. God, I pray that as this summer is designed to help us love your word more and more. I pray that we would do that. I pray that the women in this room would find stability in seeking after your word, that we would be able to be kept afloat through seeking you and seeking your commandments, God. Help us to desire more and more to obey them, to put them into practice, to do all that it says. God, help us to leave here tonight knowing exactly the things that we need to be eager about applying, that we already know we need to be applying. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, you have about five minutes to go to the restroom if you need to, grab coffee, grab cookies, just a few minutes to do any of those types of things, and then we will be back here with leaders leading you through a few discussion questions on the back of your worksheet. So go ahead and take a few minutes and then be back quickly. And one thing really quick, ladies, sorry.